Friends, let me invite you to turn to uh, the first book of the Bible. We continue our study in the life of Joseph, the life of Jacob. We come to Genesis 48. We come to what I've uh, called uh, the backhand of grace or grace's backhand. And that is meant to be a bit of a violent image, I suppose, a kind of a sharp image at the very least. And so um, let's come and hear God's word. Let's come and hear what uh, the Lord has for us. We're coming to the end of the story of Jacob. We're coming also to the end of the story of Joseph, but not quite yet. Been through a lot with them. Let's hear uh, Jacob on his deathbed in this weird episode. This weird thing that he does of blessing uh, his grandkids. We'll begin in verse 1. Let me remind you again, this is not just uh, me reading words on a page. This is a living word of God's active. It will do something to you whether you feel like it does or not. So let's receive it by faith and store it up in love. We hear from God. We hear from the author Moses these words. After this, Joseph was told, look, your father's ill. So he took him. He took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, look, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of nations and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And look, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it annoyed him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's hand, head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to my father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
he also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Look, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Dear friends, the grass withers, the flowers outside. They'll bloom, but they'll fade eventually. This word does neither. It endures forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching, the hearing, the trusting, the loving, the doing of his word. Father, we come as those who hate grace and we love it for ourselves. We hate it for others. We come as those who misunderstand grace like your disciples. Serve us once more with your grace. Heap it on our plate till we can't eat anymore. Give your straight gospel to us. No substitutes, not watered down. Give us Christ, we pray. In his name we ask this. Amen. We sing amazing grace, don't we? You know, if you ask people what's their favorite hymn, and, and uh, you're probably going to still get amazing grace. We play it at, at funerals perhaps from time to time. How sweet the sound. But is grace really that amazing? Is it that sweet? I know we're in church. I know I'm a preacher and you're expecting Jesus' words to come out of my mouth. We use the word grace all the time. But how actually, how close are we actually to getting the concept, to getting the reality, to tasting grace? How close are you to tasting grace in your life? We don't love grace. That's my contention, I suppose. If you want a thesis, here it is. Grace is unnatural. Grace is abnormal. Grace is weird to us. Grace is opposed to our nature. Just think about it. Nobody says, you don't ever say, I don't ever say, the least fit survive. No, we go to cross. We go to gym to work out. We bulk up. The strong survive, right? The pretty do well and prosper. The rich, they're the ones we want. We don't praise the tiny and the weak. We praise the great and the mighty. Just look at our states. Rhode Island's motto is not everything smaller in Rhode Island. What's Texas's motto? I lived there. I know what it was. Everything's bigger in Texas. With big hair, big trucks. Everything's bigger. Everything's better. We don't like the concept of grace, not just in church circles, not just in our thought life, but in our real lives. Our day-to-day existence, when grace is shoved in front of our faces, we don't like it. So the question is, how do we actually learn to like it? How do we actually get it when it's put in front of us? How do we know we have embraced grace? That's the question we'll find. Some of the questions we'll answer this morning as we uh, come to this weird scene. It's a funny scene. I think it's uh, back in 2004, Rolling Stone said that... um, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven was still the most requested song on FM radio. I don't know if people listen to FM radio shows us anymore. I listen to podcasts myself, but if you do listen to FM radio stations, you'll hear it. If you had to point out in your Sunday school knowledge, in your childhood understanding, in your memory of Jacob's story, if you had to point out the moment for Jacob, probably it's going to be the Stairway to Heaven. Maybe it's going to be the wrestling match with the angel. It will never be this right here. It will not be the 48th chapter of Genesis. And yet what's fascinating here 
is that when the New Testament comes to examine the life of Jacob and say, hey, this is the key moment, what's really interesting is that Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 points out, this is the episode. Out of all the events, the stairway to heaven, the, the infighting with his brother, all the kind of classic literary stories, this is the one it points out. All the kind of uh, battle and getting his wife, the wife he loves, it goes right here and says, this is Jacob's faith. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because at one level, it's, uh, you maybe you can understand how it's faithful, right? There's an old man, he got his grandkids there, he says, hey, boys. I want to come bless you. I'm going to tell you about a land. You'll never see the land. You won't be there, but I'm giving it to you. That takes some faith. That takes some, uh, some willpower, some courage. It's kind of like if you went to your granddad's hospital bed and he's dying. And he says, son, grandson, I want to give you something before I die. I've put you in my will. And you're you're perking up now because, oh, it might be really good. I've put you in my will. I'm going to give you my eight-track player. I'm going to give you my floppy drive. Okay, useless, irrelevant for our day and age. I mean, that seems to be what's happening here. Jacob is giving these grandkids, these boys, land they will never use. They will never see it. They will die in Egypt. A hard blessing to see any benefit. And why is this the, the key story from Jacob's life according to Hebrews chapter 11, according to the New Testament? It's interesting that when the New Testament talks about it, it says that Jacob worships here. And that begins to give us a little sense of why this is so important. That Jacob is actually in some way worshiping the God of grace here. How does he do it? We'll look at three things here. If you want an outline, uh, I'll give it to you in stages this time. I usually give it up front. That's a better rhetorically uh, proper way. But hey, rules are meant to be broken. So let me just give you the first point. And then we'll go from there, shall we? First, we'll see here. This is a classic reminder. It's a reminder of a former story. It's an echo, a reminder of a foreign story. I mean, if I had to ask you to start off the life of Jacob, if I had to ask you in your Sunday school Christian knowledge of Jacob's life, point A, the alpha point of Jacob, you would probably go to a story of an old man who's blind, sitting in a room, and two boys are brought before him. And I guarantee that you would never think of this story. I guarantee that you would always think of a story many years before where Isaac, Jacob's father, is sitting down. He's blind and two sons are brought, Jacob and Esau. And maybe you recall the story. I'll give it to you in short if you don't. He's going to give his blessing to his oldest son, Esau. But Jacob, favored by his mama, Rebecca connives together with her, plots and schemes to smell like Esau and feel like Esau because Isaac can't see. And he deceives and he, he gets the blessing. He gets the great gift in that culture of the firstborn's blessing. And that's the first movie. That's the origin story of this film franchise, if you will. Here's a sequel. And the irony in the sequel, the twist in the sequel, is that the old blind guy in this version is one of the sons in the first movie. He's the same one who connived and who tricked and who deceived and who plotted. And yet what's funny as we look at this, uh, this scene is that Jacob has been changed. And if he, if he looks back over his life, he looks back over his conceiving, uh, his, his, his conniving, deceitful life, 
he begins to confess things about God, about who God is, about who he is, that he has learned along the way. He mentions here, you can look at verse 7 just for one thing. He mentioned his greatest sorrow. His wife he loved died. Rachel, he worked 14 years to marry her, double overtime. He had known hardship. Hardship. He had thought his son Joseph was dead for 20 years. I mean, imagine that. If you, parents, mom and dad, if you thought you had lost your son for two decades, dead to you, that's hardship. He had known ups. He had known a lot of downs. And now he's old. You know, the older you get, the easier it is to be self-pity. Sorry for yourself. The easier it is to get wrapped up in yourself the easier it is to be a bitter person, to be negative. Old age is not always beautiful. Neither is young age, by the way. That's a different sermon, though. But, but old age can be about how bad the young people are, how things were better back then. I see it in myself. I, I, I started to think and realize that the, the Saturday morning cartoons in the late 80s and early 90s were actually a lot better than the ones today. And I'm one to die on that hill. Maybe not die. Old age, right? Yes, all you get, the more you can be groaning and bitter and sorry for yourself. And that was Jacob as an old man it used to be. But now he's changed. By God's grace, he is a beautiful specimen of an old Christian. He's come out of the valley of self-pity. Verse 3, just listen to this. He says, God Almighty appeared to me. He blessed me. He looks back at his past. He's not saying, I had really hard times and life's awful. He says, I've met God and God's changed me. God's changed me. I mean, if you can say that today, I don't care what your age is, you have every reason to be thankful. God has spoken to you. He's called you into his family. He's blessed you. What a reason to be thankful for your past, no matter where you've been. And Jacob's also thankful, of course, for God's protection. You can look at verse 15. God's my shepherd. He's been with me. We'll get there in more details in a second. But Jacob knows Psalm 23 in his bones, in his marrow. He knows how goodness and mercy have stalked him like dogs, like hound dogs all through his life. He knows how God's goodness has been there and been there and been there. And he is grateful. He is thankful for it. He's not bitter. It's astounding, isn't it? So if you want, I suppose, a lesson, people sometimes like lessons. Here's a lesson, a practical application point for people. If you want to be a good Christian, you want to be a healthy Christian, cultivate a spirit of thankfulness for the past. You want to be a healthy Christian in young and middle and old age, learn to be thankful for the past. Forget not all God's benefits, if you want to put it in psalm language. Avoid bitterness and self-pity. Realize what God's done for you. Jacob sees, I was a cheater. I was a deceiver. Now I'm someone different. It's not because of me. It's because of God's grace. That's the first point. A former story, an echo of a former story, and Jacob's now transformed. Second, he gives us a reminder. A reminder. A reminder of the faithful God. The faithful God who's the shepherd and the Redeemer. What's fascinating here, as you read through this story, is the way Jacob's referred to. You may know, you may not know. I'm about to tell you. Jacob has two names. He gets renamed Israel. And throughout his whole story, throughout the, 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 the chapters, 
Whenever Jacob is strong, whenever Jacob is living by grace, he's called Israel. Oftentimes when he's not, he's called Jacob. Did you notice here that there's a shift? There's a shift. It was told that Jacob, your son Joseph, has come to you. And then we read, Israel summoned his strength up in bed. You begin to read in, uh, in verse 8 and following, it's always Israel. It's always Israel. It's never Jacob. It's always Israel. His new name, the one who has met with God, the one who's forever changed by God's presence. And notice what he does now. He calls these two grandkids to his side. He calls these two boys. He calls Joseph, son, come on in. Bring your two grandkids. And he says, they are now mine. This is verse five. Your two sons, they're mine. What is he doing here? He's adopting them. He's legally adopting them. That's why he asks, who are they? He knows who they are. It's a formal ceremony. It's a legal adoption. We have it in our courtrooms today. This is the way they did it back then. He, he adopts them. He puts them on his knee, which symbolically means he's giving birth to them. And he gets strength to pronounce this great blessing. Look at the blessing. It's really the, the centerpiece of the whole, the whole story, the real heart of the text. He blessed Joseph. He said, verse 15, three things about God. First, God was there with me. He blessed me. He was faithful to me. He was faithful to my father, Isaac, my granddad, Abraham. He's been the God of the past. Second, he's been my shepherd all my life long. Third, he's been my redeemer. These are three things that Jacob on his deathbed wants to pass down to his grandkids. These are the three life lessons he wants to give. And notice here, he does not go into some academic philosophical discussion about God. He does not go into intense philosophy. He basically just tells them, this is what God's done for me. This is who he is. In other words, he's telling them what kind of God God actually is. Such an important lesson as we think about God's grace. You have to know who God actually is. You don't get to know God through mere mental effort. You don't get to know God through simple, logical reasoning. You know God supremely through what he's done in time and space. You know him through what he tells you about himself. And so Jacob says, first, he's my, my dad and my granddad. He's the God of my fathers. Why does he start there? He starts there because... He understands that the same God is his God. His daddy is God. His granddaddy's God is his God. And by implication will be his son's God and his grandkids God. God had sworn to Abraham, I will be your God if it kills me. I will be your God no matter what. If I have to kill myself, I will be your God. And of course, to look to Jesus Christ, you see that what it costs God. To walk with his people all the days of their lives. And then second, Jacob says, God's my shepherd. This is the first time the word shepherd's used in the Bible to describe God. The first time that metaphor that we love, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's coming from Jacob. Why does Jacob use it? Because he was a shepherd. He knew what it's like to get down and dirty. He knew the hardship of a shepherd. He knew the glory of a shepherd. He knew sheep intimately. He had watched over flocks day and night. He guarded them. He cared for them. So he says, God shepherded me like I had to shepherd sheep. It's fascinating. As he looked back over his life, he can confess through all the bad things that happened to me, God was my shepherd. 
He doesn't say through all the bad things that happened to me, God was playing tricks on me like a lot of us do. I hate God because he'd ruined my life. No, Jacob says, when I was getting tricked by Uncle Laban, God was there shepherding me. When I had to run from my life from my brother because of my own stupidity and deceit, God was there shepherding me. When I mourned the death of my beloved wife, Rachel, God was there shepherding me. When my son Joseph was dead for 20 years, so I thought God was shepherding me. He has always been my shepherd. He can look at the good in his life. He can look at the bad in his life. He can look at the stupidity, the folly, the sin of himself. He can look at the evil of other people and he can say, God was through it all. God was in it all. He didn't forsake me. It's Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me in the presence, not of great times, not of happy unicorn times, but in the presence of my enemies. Right there when they're right facing me down. When my shame's there, when my guilt's there, when my sorrow's there, when, when I face death down, you're my shepherd. And yet, when Jacob says you're my shepherd, he's also saying something else that we don't like to say. He's saying, I'm the sheep. I'm sheeple. He's saying, yes, you're caring for me. I need to be cared for. And you've heard it. If you've been in the church at any time, you hear the pastors tell you all the time, oh, sheep, they're stupid. They are. They're not resourceful. They're not. Don't, sheep don't have long fangs. They're not like you know, the cool animals, like the wolves, the tigers. They don't have claws to defend themselves. They always need a shepherd. They can't take care of themselves. They are followers by nature. So if one eats a poisonous plant, the others will all be like, oh, what's this good thing? Let me eat it. And they'll all die. Sheep are not highly prized creatures. Not, you, nobody buys sheep. And you're all buying chickens now, right? For the eggs. Nobody buys sheep. Jacob says, yeah, I know, it's me. I'm sheep. I'm not somebody that God saw, wow, you're a really solid Christian. Wow, you're a really great person. I'm going to pick you because you're smart and you're compassionate and you're wonderful. No, you're a wayward, foolish, deceptive person. Jacob said, yeah, me. Me, God shepherded me because I needed it and I still need it. And then lastly, he says here, uh, verse 16, God's the angel who redeemed me. What does that mean? I mean, we use the redeem word. That's another word we use all the time. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be brought and bought out of deep debt that you can't buy yourself out of. You're in hock. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. You sell yourself off as they did back in those days. We saw that last time. You can't get out of it. And so God comes and God redeems. God buys you out of your poverty, out of your soul poverty. He buys you out of your lack and your inability. That's what we did for Jacob. And then, of course, he, he says, verse 16, not just me, but them. Not just my God in the past, but their God, my God for their future, my God for their future. He says in these grandkids, let my name be carried on, let them grow. And this is the second thing, I suppose, that really makes the old age of a Christian different from anybody else's old age. Like if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're old. That's a terrible existence to live with. It makes sense if you're bitter because there's no future hope. It's a tragedy all the way down. Your life is closing down. Your pleasures are closing down. You're decaying. But for the Christian, old age is different. Heaven's opening up. Heaven's opening up. And we see this man right here, this man Jacob. He's not like so many people obsessed with the past. 
the golden age been the, back in the day. He's not concerned about his food or his comfort as many folks get as they grow older, obsessed about themselves. He's thinking about other people. He's thinking about the generations to come. And that's why he adopts these kids. Because ultimately he understands grace. So we'll close here. What's grace? You see it in this story. What's grace? You see that there's a, this weird thing that happened with the hands. And this is a very handsy text, if you will. It's a weird thing that happens with the hands that Jacob has. He has his right hand, he has his left hand. Of course, you know, if you uh, know anything about cultures, that right-handed people tend to be uh, seen as superior. Left-handed people, apologies to all of y'all out there, a little bit less so. It was the case in the ancient world that the right hand was the hand of blessing, the left hand, not the hand of blessing, the hand of cursing, or at least less blessing here. And uh, so there's a scene here with, with Jacob. You see it like in verse uh, 13 and following. And you, you see Joseph, daddy, daddy's trying to prime the pump. He's trying to uh, make sure that his oldest son, Manasseh, gets the best, the best blessing. He's trying to make sure that, that, that the, the right son, the good-looking son, the successful son, the proper son, the correct son gets the blessing. This is the order of things. The oldest gets the best blessing. The second oldest gets the second best blessing. The oldest gets the power, gets the money, gets the property, gets everything. All that matters in that culture went to the firstborn son. And yet, you have to love the picture. I mean, if you read it, hopefully you're there's it, it, It's comedy. The Bible is comedic. It's funny. What did Jacob do? Switcheroo. You know, Joseph, like, primes. He puts the, hand, the head right under the, the right hand. And Jacob's like, no, no, this way. He switches up the blessing. And in fact, the, the Hebrew is very strong here in verse 17. Joseph says, hey, uh, dad, you're wrong. It doesn't just dis- displease him. He's greatly annoyed. He's furious at, at his dad. His father is ruining his grandkids' life. Parents, you know that, right? <laughs> you know that sometimes interacting with the grandparents and your kids, they have different views on things. And so uh, Joseph's very, very furious about that. Joseph's frustrated. He says, Dad, you're blind. You can't see. Let me fix it again. Let's have a redo. Can we have a redo? He tried to have a redo. Not this way. Verse verse 18. And Jacob says, no, son, I I see. I I get it. I I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And as he does that, do you realize what he's saying here? He is blowing up your conceptions of how the world works and how God works and how grace works. Because much like Joseph, you and I do not understand grace deep down. We like it when we're in this bad spot, but every other time, every day in our life, we do not understand God's grace. We do not see that God chooses according to his grace, not according to what we expect. He does not choose Jacob because Jacob was a hot shot, but because he's weaker. And Jacob, like his God, deliberately puts his blessing upon the youngest one, not the oldest one, the weaker one, not the mighty one. He sees by faith what grace is, that God blesses contrary to our expectations. He blesses according to grace. Jacob realizes, I'm a sheeple. I need God's grace. I have to cross my hands. He understands because he knows what he deserved. He did not deserve grace. He did not deserve God's favor. He had been a cheat and he connived to get it. He didn't deserve to get it. 
You see, it's funny because this is like the, the fifth time God's done something like this in the book of Genesis. You might want to ask, why does God keep repeating the same story? And of course, the, some of the scholars say, oh, that, that's an example of bad editing. They don't know how to write back then. That's very arrogant um, and not very considerate of other human beings who were not dumb back in the day. It's not bad editing, friends. It's God ramming it down your throat because you're an amnesiac. We all have dimension when it comes to God's grace. We forget it and we forget it and we forget it. And he tells you again and he tells you again. He he did it with Isaac and Ishmael, the younger, not the older. He did it with Leah and Rachel, Leah, the ugly wife, blessed, not the pretty last Rachel. He did it with, of course, Jacob and Esau, the very guy here, Jacob, not Esau. He did it with Joseph, the hated son, exalted above his brothers over and over again. The problem is we don't work that way, do we? We sing amazing grace. That's what it sounds. We don't believe it. God loves the self-sufficient American Christian who's worked hard. Don't give me no handout. I'm too proud for that. We don't want to be served. God loves people who give him a lot of things, who pray well or pray a lot or, you know, memorize some Bible verses. Or God loves the smart. And you know what? Probably God loves the theologically precise, especially folks like Presbyterians, right? He, he, he loves the, the intellectually nerdy first. That's my sin, right? They will go into heaven first. God loves those who are decent, well-ordered, people who work hard, who have good families, who don't screw up their lives. God loves good, above-average, middle-class Americans which is what most of us say we are in every poll. It's another case. I mean, we don't mind if he shows grace to other people. Okay. The poor people need some grace. As long as they remember they're poor. As long as they remember they're part of the great unwashed ma- masses. We can embrace trashy people as long as they know where they fit in our boxes. Trashy. We don't mind going to church with elite, high-class, high-flying, high-society people as long as they remember that they are snobby and that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I never have a problem with that. These days, right? We don't mind doing that as long as they know they're not quite as equal as we are. We pat the poor like little kids in the head or we show mercy to the wealthy saying, oh, it must be so hard to be rich and be a Christian, you know. You've got so many things you've got to be dealing with <laughs> because we don't realize grace. We don't realize who we are in the story. We don't realize that we're, we are simply sheep like Jacob. He gets it. We are the youngest one. We are the weakest one. And yet still we say, I'm owed it. I'm owed grace. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't do what all the bad people do. And I, I believe in the right uh, view of ethics. I, I, have, I, I give to the right causes. I am better than thee. I suppose the grace, picture of grace is what it took God to actually show grace to us. What did it take God to show grace to Jacob? What did it take God to show grace to Ephraim? It took God coming and not coming into the penthouse, but the poorhouse. It took Jesus Christ. What did Christ himself do? He became loath. He added to himself human nature. He was born in a podunk town. That's a f- <laughs> quite a lot worse than a suburb of Atlanta. In a town where people ask, can anything ever good come out of there? No, is the obvious answer. He made himself lower to redeem low people, not top gals, helpless people. 
And until you recognize that you are a helpless person, that God was incarnate in human flesh, that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, had to give his lifeblood that you might be bought. Until you realize that you're in hot to God, up to your nose and beyond, then you will never love God rightly, and you'll never treat other people rightly either. You'll screw up all your relationships because they're predicated on how much you can get out of other people and how little you can give them in return. Just enough, right? Not too radical because those are weird people. I don't like weird people. And so we domesticate and neuter grace because we forget what the Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Until you see that, you're going to be bitter. Whether you're young or middle or old, whatever age you are, you be bitter to God for whatever lot you think he gave you. You'll be ungrateful to him. So, dear friends, what is the uh, practical application as we finish up here? Give me give you the practical application. You're sheep. That's it. See that you're sheep. And that God has come to save sheep like you, not for people who made all the best decisions in life. He's not come for the beautiful or the smart because they're beautiful or smart. He's come for the people who need him. Do you see you're in debt? And that God gives super abundantly beyond all of your debt. And no matter how much in hock you are to him, no matter how messed up your life is, his grace abounds and he loves to serve and therefore make you a servant. Let's pray. Father, we come as those who need to see your grace in more technicolor. They need to see it in uh, deeper uh, resolution. I pray that you would strengthen us by um, your mighty hand to show us our need and yet show us that you are, as we often sing, mighty to save. You are a God who is far above what we imagine, and you are a God who's gone deeper into our... uh, our misery, our muck, our mire than ever before. We pray that you would serve us. And as you serve us, as you sympathize with us, you would give us that ability to serve and sympathize in return. I pray you would bless your church in this hour. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.